want to invite you for the next two months of Sundays to go into the inner sanctum with the Lord Jesus. For the next two months, we'll have the privilege of joining Jesus in the throne room. We're in John's gospel. We've made it to chapter 17. The whole chapter, as you turn there, you'll notice is a prayer of the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus in the throne room, and Lord willing, for the next seven Sundays, counting today, we'll eavesdrop together on Jesus as he fellowships with his Father in prayer on the evening before he was crucified. It's Thursday evening in the life of Jesus. He's soon to cross over that Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. That happens in chapter 18 where he prays that infamous prayer, not my will but yours be done as he sweats drops of blood just prior to his being betrayed by Judas, arrested by over 600 soldiers, paraded into the court where he's unjustly tried before Herod and Pontius Pilate. And as we make our way into chapter 19, where he's crucified between two thieves, this is Thursday evening before that. Jesus has spent the previous few chapters having an intimate conversation with his 11 faithful disciples. From chapter 13 through 16, he's giving what's often referred to as the upper room discourse. They've shared the Lord's Supper together. He's washed their feet. But after those chapters of intimate fellowship and teaching from Jesus to his closest followers, he closes his sermon, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he begins to pray. Thomas Manton wrote 400 pages of devotional meditations on the 26 verses of chapter 17. Martin Luther said, no one can fathom the depths of this chapter even into eternity. Charles Spurgeon said John 17 is the holy of holies of the Bible. I invite you for the next two months not to come to church, but to go into the throne room with Jesus. To meditate throughout the week. To come with a heart sensitive on the Lord's day. To listen in to the way Jesus prays. Today, my aim is just to introduce and overview this chapter. And Lord willing to take the next six Sundays to look at the parts of it together. I want to give you an assignment before I read this glorious prayer. And that is to ask the Lord to cause a phrase or two to latch to your heart. And then at the conclusion of today's sermon, as we spend a few moments together in prayer, to take that phrase into the throne room yourself and to pray it back to the Lord. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the living God. 
Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
Be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, we thank you that you delight, you rejoice, you are thrilled to do your will. Thank you, God, that you love to do what you have purposed from eternity. And we therefore with holy confidence, boldly ask you to answer the prayer of your Son, and that you would do so in our lives, that you would do so in this church, that what Jesus prays, you would do in us. We say yes and amen to the intercession of our Savior. Do it, Lord. We receive, we avail ourselves to you. And we ask that you would empower us to obey as he has prayed the mission that he has entrusted to us. And that you would produce the fruit in the world that you have already given to your son that you will accomplish through his ambassadors. Lord, cause us to be those ambassadors. Fulfill this prayer in our life. And we ask that as we embark on this new year, and we spend the first couple of months in the throne room listening to the Lord Jesus pray, oh God, we ask that you would cause our lives to reflect what he has so beautifully beseeched. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already mentioned that by the time we reach today's text, Jesus has finished teaching his disciples. He knows that he's beneath the shadow of the cross. And I hope and pray, I have prayed, that we would find it so immensely encouraging and enticing, so inviting, so magnetizing of our hearts to the Lord that when he's in this moment, He devotes himself to prayer. It's Thursday evening. As I mentioned, it's just before Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane. And for today, my prayer is that the Lord would use this little moment to whet your spiritual appetite for the next six weeks and for a lifetime of walking with Jesus and living in unity with his people. I mentioned that we'll take Jesus' prayer in six parts after today, today's introduction, but the introduction will just be uh, the, the titles of the sermons that are to come. Those are the six parts of today's message. The prayer actually breaks down into three parts. Maybe you saw it or your Bible may even have it kind of divided that way into paragraphs as we read it. Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his 11 disciples, and then he prays for his church, for his people who will believe, all who will believe. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. 
In verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 to 26, he prays for his church, for all who will believe. It is a remarkable thing that we are permitted to listen in on our Lord's intercession. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have such an extended excerpt from one of Jesus' prayers. We do have a few of His other prayers recorded. None like this. Many have referred to John 17, as I mentioned Spurgeon called it, as the holy of holies of the Bible. We're invited into the presence chamber of the King of Glory, the triune God, to listen to God's intertrinitarian conversation, the Son with the Father. And we now have the Spirit-inspired record of that communion. This is how Jesus prays. The first part of the prayer I mentioned is Jesus' prayer for Himself. The first point that we'll look at Beneath that section, which is the title for Lord willing next week's sermon, is Jesus' plea for His glorification. That's next week's sermon title. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus' plea for His glorification. Verse 1 lets us know that this prayer follows Jesus' teaching in chapters 13 to 16. It says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, meaning chapters 13 to 16, and then lifting up His eyes to heaven. So we know he's praying with his eyes wide open. The disciples can hear what he's praying. Imagine the scene. The dark of night has fallen over the city of Jerusalem. They don't have the conveniences of modernity like power, electricity. It's nightfall. There's a few candles burning in homes. You can see lights around the city. The temple which they're beside is no doubt lit in some capacity for the Passover. Jesus is about to step over the Kidron Valley. That's the valley between the Temple Mount and the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives. That valley is known as the Kidron Valley. That's the valley where the blood of the sacrifices would be mingled with the water runoff and it would trickle, no doubt, during the Passover. It would be flowing crimson. Jesus is about to step over that valley, but before he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, he offers this prayer, and we're told he lifts his eyes to heaven. I want you to notice first the intimacy of this prayer. Verse 1, 4, 5, 11, 21. 24, 25, seven times, Father. The intimate communion of the Son with His God, yes, but with Father. And the most important aspect of this occasion is stated in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Those of you who've been tracking with us through John's Gospel or know something of the narrative of John's Gospel know that 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 four-letter word, H-O-U-R, hour in John's Gospel refers to the cross of Jesus. And when Jesus says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come, He no doubt means His death. Many times earlier, Jesus explicitly says in John's Gospel, the hour has not yet come. 
chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, again in chapter 8. It's not time. It's not time. The hour has not come. But here, as he began to say in chapter 12, when the nations come to him, in John chapter 12, the first time when the Greeks start to seek Jesus, somebody other than the Jews, when the whole world comes to Jesus in chapter 12, for the first time, Jesus then says, the hour has come. He's not a parochial deity. He's not a commodified God. He's not a tribal savior. But when the nations come, he knows that it's time for him to go to the cross to purchase our salvation. And here in chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. It's so tempting for me to say more about the first five verses, but for, but for today's purpose, I simply want to stress that when Jesus sees the eternal plans of God unfolding in front of his face, when Jesus, with 2020 spiritual vision, knows what nobody else in the crowd or the city or the world knows, When Jesus sees the unstoppable outworkings of God's eternal decrees, the irrevocable intentions of God exercising his prerogatives in the world to redeem a people for himself, to give his son a bride, when Jesus sees God's providence unfolding, he does not revert to fatalism, but to prayer. This is the stress that I want to lay for today's introduction among a lot of other things that I'm tempted to stress. When Jesus sees that the hour has come, we learn in this moment that prayer is precisely what the providence of God should provoke in the lives of his people. Jesus knows something deeply profound about prayer. Here's the simple statement of the profound point that I want to lay upon your hearts today. Jesus knows something deeply profound about prayer. What does He know? He knows that all of God's purposes, all of His sovereign, eternal plans that no man can undo or thwart, as Job said at the end of his miserable life, Now I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42. When Jesus sees the purposes of God's providence unfolding, he doesn't revert to fatalism but prayer. Why? It's because he knows this, that all of God's purposes will be accomplished through answered prayer. There's predestinarian language all over John 17. If you don't like that God is sovereign, that He elects, that He saves whomever He will according to His own choice, no merit of our own, you're not going to like John 17. It's all over the place. But this is not weaponized to become fatalistic. It's not triumphalistic. There's no no pride in the predestinarian language. It's actually a motive to humility and prayer in the life of the King of glory. Here's how this works. Verse 2 does not impede Jesus' prayer. It incentivizes His prayer. 
The reality of the Father's sovereign prerogative provokes Jesus to pray. Because he's sovereign, therefore Jesus prays. Do you see it in verse 2? Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. That's sovereignty. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Because you have given me a people, so that I may give them eternal life. Because I have authority over the entire cosmos, therefore I'm coming to you. So we see... The more Jesus knows that the Father has done something, He has given Him a people. And the more Jesus is coming into that harrowing moment of the cross that God will do something, Jesus will give eternal life to everyone the Father's given Him. That's an absolute guarantee the more he sees those two realities coalescing, the more he prays for God to do it. How does the sovereignty of God affect your prayer life? We cannot escape that the life eternal that Jesus came to purchase in his death, for which he prays to God, that he prays for God to accomplish, What is this eternal life? It is a deep, intimate, experiential acquaintance with God. Knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you see why Jesus is now praying? He knows what eternal life is. He knows that eternal life, not existence, life, is bound up in intimate acquaintance with God. He is drawing near to His Father in intimate fellowship, and He is saying that eternal life, if anyone is ever going to have it, it is going to be this. It is going to be a knowing of God, the only true God, and knowing that Jesus Christ is in parallel, equal dignity and majesty. Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why in eternity past, before a world ever existed, before there were planets or stars, moon, sun, cosmos, before there were galaxies, before anything outside of God ever existed. This is why in eternity past, God purposed to send His Son into the world that He would create. That His Son, as we sang, that second Adam would perfectly obey, not rebel against God. He would live that life of sinless obedience, perfect honor to the Father, that He would die that ignominious cross death, that mutilating, brutal death under the worst tyranny that men could inflict upon Him. And worse than that, that He would die, as Isaiah 53 says, suffering the punishment of the Father. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In eternity past, when God purposed to send His Son into this world, that He would die the death we deserve, that He would rise again from the dead, that He would ascend into heaven, that God the Holy Spirit would inspire the apostles to write the conclusion of His Word. The reason God purposed in eternity past to do all of that in His Son is so that you can know God like Jesus knows Him. 
Salvation is fundamentally God inviting you into the relationship with God that God has enjoyed for all eternity. That's verse 3. This is eternal life. That they get to know you like I know you. That they get to fellowship with you like I fellowship with you. So, the main thing I want to say from verses 1 to 5 is that Jesus sees the sovereign purposes of God unfolding in the world. And instead of becoming a fatalist, okay, God's sovereign, why pray? As he sees God sovereignly at work, he therefore is incentivized to pray. But notice what he wants most of all. It's verse 1 and verse 5. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, verse 1. Verse 5, glorify me with yourself that with the glory I had with you before the, before the world was. What Jesus most deeply wants is a re-entrance into the eternal glory that he has shared with the Father from forever. That's how he prays for himself. He knows that it's just on the other side of the cross, or as the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He knew where he was headed because he had been there from forever. And he prays that the Father would do it. So how, after praying for himself, how does he then pray for his disciples? There are three ways that he prays for his disciples. First, he grounds his prayer. It's the title of the sermon two weeks from now. Verses 6 through 11, the ground of Jesus' intercession for his disciples. How's that for a fancy sermon title? Lord willing, on January 16th, that'll be the title of the sermon here at Grace Church. The ground of Jesus' intercession for his disciples. It's verses 6 through 11. Before he prays specific requests for them, he tells the Lord why he's praying it. Look at verses 6 through 11. He gives eight reasons that he's praying for his disciples. Verse 6, the Father gave them to the Son. Verse 6, Jesus manifested God's name to them. Verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 7, they know that everything that belongs to Jesus came from the Father. Verse 8, Jesus gave the Father's words to them. Verse 8, they believe that Jesus came from God and was sent by him. Verse 10, Jesus has been glorified in them. And 8 verse 11, Jesus is leaving them in the world upon his return to glory. That's the reasons that Jesus bases his prayer for them on, which is the next two points. He prays for their protection, and then he prays for their glorification. That's the next two sermon titles after that. I want to draw out one thing from one ground for today's purposes. In verses 6 through 11, the ground of Jesus' intercession for his disciples, one of the things I said is found in verse 6. Do you see this little phrase? They have kept your word. Yours may not render it exactly like that, but look for that little phrase or something close to it. They have kept your word. Do you know who Jesus is praying about here? This is the 11 people who just a few verses earlier, 1632, Jesus said an hour is coming and has already come when you're going to be scattered. He's praying for the people 
who are very wishy-washy have tons of undesirable moments. In Mark's gospel, the first time Jesus talks about his death, he says terrible things. He says they are going to, when I get to Jerusalem, they are going to mistreat me. They are going to scandalously talk about me. They are going to beat me. They are going to abuse me. And then they're going to kill me. The next thing his disciples says, say, okay, that sounds good. Grant that we may sit at your right hand. It's these 11 people who have tons of undesirable moments that Jesus says to the Father about them, they have kept your word. Here's the one thing I want to draw out for today. Jesus can see the end from the beginning. I don't believe John's being anachronistic. I know he writes this about 30 years after the cross. I don't think he's talking about then. I think he's talking about now. The night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus is looking at the fledgling faith of these 11 true converts, and he is saying to the Father, done. They have kept your word. He can see the end from the beginning. He sees the seed of their faith that is in him, therefore genuine and will prove true. You see, it's not the size of your faith that saves you. It's the object. It's the Savior who saves. Faith doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. And these 11, Jesus knew, had trusted him. They have kept your word. The seed of their faith Jesus knew would blossom into an oak of righteousness. Their faith would prove to be the planting of the Lord, as Isaiah said. You go read the book of Acts, you go read the epistles, Jesus knew that was coming. He knew that these people would suffer hardship from him, for him, for his namesake, that they would count it a privilege to be beaten and whipped for his namesake, that they would think that it was an honor, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. He knew that they would be imprisoned for their faith, that they would be run out of cities for their faith. He knew that Paul would be stoned, another apostle later, for his faith and for his ministry. And as Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us, tradition holds, Jim shared a few illustrations a few weeks ago, that all of them, according to history, would be themselves martyred except for John the apostle for their faith in him. Here's the point I want to make for today. This means something really, really wonderful for us. The moment, the nanosecond, you believe upon the risen Jesus for your salvation. The very moment that you turn from your sin and from yourself. The very instance that you fly to Jesus for mercy, that you put all your hope, all your faith in Him to make you right with God forever, to forgive all your sin, to count you righteous in God's sight. The minute you trust Jesus for your salvation, He sees you as good as glorified. They have kept your word. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. I find it so immensely encouraging that the night before he dies on the cross, Jesus can look at 11 people like me and say, they've kept your word. 
The second part of his prayer for his disciples is when he intercedes for their protection, God willing, on January 23rd, our sermon title will be Jesus' intercession for his disciples' protection. It's verses 11b through 16. Jesus' intercession for his disciples' protection. So he prayed for himself in verses 1 to 5. He's praying for his disciples. Starting in verse 6, he first grounded his prayer, eight reasons, and now he prays in verses 11 to 16 for their protection. Verse 12, we see that during Jesus' incarnation, he was keeping the disciples in the Father's name. Do you see that? I was keeping them in your name, which you, give, which you have given me. And in verse 12, Jesus doesn't fail when Judas apostatizes. Oh, you, you, you forgot one, Jesus. No, he didn't. Judas' defection was a fulfillment of Scripture that Jesus knew, the, disciples, uh, the gospel writers tell us, Jesus knew that Judas' defection was coming before Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve. The reason Judas betrayed Jesus and sold his soul to Satan was because the Old Testament predicted that it would be so. But Jesus wants his faithful followers to continue to be protected after he's gone. So in verses 11b to 16, that's what he prays for. And in verse 15, he prays explicitly, keep them from the evil one. So for today's purposes, here's what I want to draw out. Number one, I've tried to say, look, when you see God's sovereignty, pray more, not less. Number two, Jesus sees you as good as glorified. Take heart. He's going to finish the work that he began in you. But here's the third thing I want to draw out today as Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. Have you ever thought about why a Christian's faith will not fail? Why do we keep on keeping on in our believing, in our trusting, in our pursuing Christ? Are some people just better at faith than other people? Do some Christians just have it figured out a little better than other Christians? Is that why some make it and some don't? Is that why not all quit? No. Every Christian feels his or her weakness. I can assure you, if you're not a Christian in the room today, I can assure you that every Christian in this place feels his or her weakness. Not one Christian feels strong in their faith. On the contrary, we're painfully aware of our ability to make shipwreck of our faith, to defect on Jesus, to give up. So what's the reason that so many millions make it to the end? Keep persevering. One of the Bible's most climactic answers to that question is because Jesus prays it so. It's all over Scripture, Old and New Testament. Lord willing, on the 23rd of this month, we'll have more detail on it. Let me give you one. In Hebrews 2, Jesus is praying, and this is what he says, I will put my trust in you. Did he do that? Yes. Literary parallel, exactly like that. I will put my trust in you, and so will those whom you have given me. How do I know that genuine faith in Jesus will never fail for one true convert? Because Jesus has guaranteed it by his intercession. 
You remember, don't you, precious Christians, whose lives are filled with trials and temptations, and you feel every day that you're on the precipice of giving up yourself. You know that your pathway is littered with landmines that threaten the core of your confidence in Christ. You see the world around you deteriorating. We're living in a total degradation of society. Everything seems to be plummeting into the pit of hell right around us. People are reconstructing their faith constantly, and all this nonsense is happening around us. And Satan may put his crosshairs on you. And instead of coming to you, he may go to God. And he may demand permission to sift you like wheat, like he did Peter. He may go to God and say, of course she trusts you. Look at how you've blessed her. Look at all that you've given to her. Let me at her for a little while. Like he did it with Job. Satan may demand permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus wants you to take heart. Because like he did for Peter, when Satan demanded permission to sift him like wheat, and Jesus said, go for it. Jesus told Peter, what a little phrase, but I have prayed for you. Do you want to know why not one true Christian will ever defect from the faith? Because Jesus is asking God to not let you give up. You're held by the omnipotent prayer life of the Lord Jesus. The final way Jesus prays for his disciples is in verses 17 to 19. And he's praying not here for their protection. He's praying for their glorification, for their holiness. Verses 17 to 19 He not only wants his followers to be preserved to the end, to make it limping across the finish line, held on by a thread, he wants them to overcome and be glorified. He ended his teaching, his preaching, his sermon in chapter 16 by telling his closest followers, I have overcome the world. And in verses 17 to 19, he wants them to walk in his victory. He prays with confidence in the means that God will use to make them holy and the mission that God intends for them to carry out. The means is in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The mission is in verses 18 and 19. You sent me, so I'm sending them. Look at verse 17. Oh, that we would pray like this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy. Make them pure. Father, cleanse them. Set them apart. Make them like me. But do it this way, Father. Through the agency of your Spirit-inspired word. Through the truth of your word written Cause them to be conformed to your word incarnate. One commentator said, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him. Without learning to live in conformity with the word that God has graciously given. It's already been prayed in this service that many of us on this second day of another new year probably are loaded with resolutions and hopes. Maybe we feel painfully aware of how we failed last year's resolve. 
But may it be said of us that this year, come the end of it, Lord willing, we'll be more rooted in God's Word, more saturated with His truth, more Jeremiah-like. I found your words and I ate them because they are a joy and a delight to my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. May it be said of us like people in days of revival of, of yesteryear when God visits a people with his presence in such a powerful way. When a lot of grace is packed into a little space, it was said that it would have been an inconvenience if there were bars of gold laid in the street. People would have stepped over them in order to get to their Bibles. And that's just an illustration of the way God was working among his people. May it be said of us that we're people who, like the psalmist, would say, better than gold better than much fine gold, or, or, or like the, 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 the most delicious meal you've ever tasted, that we would say sweeter than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb, your word. Jesus is praying that his people would be sanctified in truth, and that quote that I said a minute ago, no one will be sanctified without learning to think God's thoughts after him. Nobody can live your Christian life for you. And Jesus wants you to be sanctified by being immersed in the truth of God's Word. But not so you could be set on the shelf as an object of a trophy for Him to talk about how pure you are. No, no, no. He wants you to be sanctified so that you can be useful. That's verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, verse 19, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So in John's gospel, there's this powerful connection. Every time you find sanctification in John's gospel, it's connected to God's mission. His goal is to not make you squeaky clean. His goal is to make you useful in his service. He wants you to be holy because he wants to use you. He wants you to be an instrument in his hand to show and to tell others what his son is like. And for those others to be able to look at you to see what it would be like to belong to his son. That's why he wants you sanctified. Because you're sent into this lost and dying world because Jesus has others that he intends to save, which leads us to the last part of the prayer Jesus not only prays for himself, verses 1 to 5, not only prays for his disciples for their protection and glorification in verses 6 to 19, but then he prays for all who will believe. What a precious, precious portion of the Bible. This is verses 20 to 26. There's two parts of it. Lord willing, the sermon title on February 6 will be Jesus' intercession for all who believe. And then finally, on February the 13th, Jesus' intercession for all believers to see His glory. Jesus' intercession for all who will believe, that's verse 20 to 23. In this portion, He's praying for our unity with one another and our faithfulness in His mission. In verses 24 to 26, He's praying for us to be with Him forever so that we can see His glory and know His love and His immediate presence. Look at verses 20 to 23. This is Jesus' intercession for all who will believe. As I mentioned, we'll dig in, Lord willing, more deeply on February the 6th. Look at verse 20. For all those who believe in me through their word. 
Isn't it amazing that you can read here what Jesus is praying for you even now? We, we, we hear, we, we, uh, we title passages of the Bible, the love chapter. We title passages of the Bible. We have a, a portion of it in Matthew's gospel that we call the Lord's Prayer. Not to quibble over it, that's not the Lord's Prayer because he wouldn't pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. He had no sin to be forgiven. That's a model prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. This is his high priestly prayer. This is a template of what he's praying for us even now in his ongoing intercession as he sits at the Father's right hand, enthroned in glory, risen from the dead, the Redeemer of all who would put their trust in him. And this is how he's praying, for all who would believe in me through their word. That's you. In verse 21, this is what he wants. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. You don't need to wait to February the 6th when we have a sermon on verses 20 to 23 to know that we're living in a day when Satan is in an all-out attack on believers' unity. But Jesus is praying that we would be as unified as the Trinity. That we would be one even as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. That we would see the seamless, though distinct, but the seamless relationships of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfect harmony, perfect koinonia, perfect love, perfect fellowship. And that that, as we put our eyes on the one true triune God and we see His eternal, delighted, unified fellowship among the persons of the Trinity, as we look to Him, that we would be so unified. This is how He's praying for us. And in verses 22 to 23, He says again that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. This is number one prayer for Jesus for all who will ever believe. This is his aim. This is the work that he's praying that the Father would accomplish. But there's a reason. What happens if we're not unified with other believers? the world won't believe the gospel. Verse 21, so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. Let's be honest. Why would anybody want to be a Christian if they look at the lives of Christians who hate, despise, ridicule, bicker about, slander, gossip against each other? Our unity is an evangelistic appeal to the world. I'm sure somebody could walk in here who doesn't know anybody in the room and say, oh yeah, they have a bunch of stuff in common. That's why they, you know, all like to go to the same church. Well, if anybody's new here, let me just say, I have almost nothing in common with just about anybody here. My personal preferences, you look at my refrigerator or pantry, my my nutrition preferences, probably don't look anything like yours. We live in the same city. We may go to the same stores. We don't have to have anything in common. If we have Christ in common, we have everything in common. D.A. Carson said, verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me, shows, I believe this is spot on accurate. 
The reason I'm reading you a quote is because I don't think I can say this better. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me, shows beyond possibility of doubt that the unity is meant to be observable. It is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence upon God himself for life and fruitfulness. It's not a surprise that this is why the, this has been the enemy's primary attack in every generation. To bring disharmony among true believers. And today, many of us are playing into his hand. We're being seduced by the enemy's tactic to focus on the things that would divide believers rather than what unites us. It's nowhere more evident that when with our own mouth we're ready to talk about why other believers are wrong about this and about that, about why our pet issue is the issue and everybody who sees it differently is, I'll save you the words. But why on the other hand would any true believer who's united to God in Christ, has been made a co-heir with Jesus, has been promised every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, why would we find it awkward or less common even to articulate with our mouth why we love another believer who is loved by the same Jesus who loves us? Brothers and sisters, if we would open our mouths in agreement with Jesus' prayer, and express explicitly our love for one another, Jesus promised us that the consequence in the world would be they will know that God has sent a Savior. Our strongest apologetic to the world of the reality of God's love for us and for them is in verse 23, that we be perfected in unity so that the world may know that Jesus has been sent from the Father. Which leads to the final part of his prayer, and God willing, on February 13th, the sermon title will be Jesus' intercession for all believers to see his glory. Jesus' prayer for every believer to see his glory. This is where we close. There are so many deep fountains in the Bible. I don't mean to pit a passage against another passage, but there are no deeper fountains in the Bible than this paragraph. There may be some tied for first, but there are none deeper than verses 24 to 26. The love of the Father for the Son and the aim of the Son, the Lord Jesus, for all of His redeemed to be with Him where He is. Verse 24 says, so that we may see His glory. Here's the final observation that I want to draw out from this passage, and I want to encourage you to make this your prayer for yourself no matter what anybody else does or prays, I'm challenging you to pray this way. <clears throat> Verse 26. That as Jesus makes the Father's name known to you and continues to make the Father known to you, that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in you and that Christ in all his fullness would be in you. That's verse 26. 
Here's my final comment. The crucial point, one commentator said, is that this text does not simply make these followers the objects of God's love. Verse 23 does that. You are loved by God with the same love that he loves Jesus with. That's verse 23. That's not verse 26. Verse 26 is promising that you and I will be so transformed and God will be continually made known to us by the Lord Jesus. He will make the Father known to us ongoing, continually, so that God's own love for Jesus will be the love that we have for each other. The love with which we learn to love is nothing less than the love that God has among the persons of the Trinity. That's verse 26. The love with which you love me may be in them. So I'm going to ask you to pray that way. That you would love your fellow brother and sister with the same love that the Father has for the Son. If you love your neighbor that way, then I trust that what God said is true would be experienced in your life. Love will cover a multitude of sins. So Jesus is praying like this, chapter 17, even now. Hebrews 7 says he's on his throne ever living to make intercession for us. This is how he's praying. So believer, if you're in Christ, because of the gospel, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that you have this same access to the Father that Jesus is demonstrating right here in chapter 17. He speaks as if his gospel work is already a done deal, even though it's Thursday night, not Sunday afternoon. I have accomplished accomplished all the work that you've given me to do. I have glorified your name. And he's saying it because he knows that when he rises from the dead, every promise of God will be yes in him. You have the same access to the Father that Jesus demonstrates in chapter 17. Unbeliever. You just heard Jesus pray for you. What did he pray? If you're not yet a Christian, what did Jesus pray for you? that the world may believe that you sent me. That's how Jesus is praying for you, verse 21. That's the one thing. And until that one thing happens in you, until you believe that the Father sent Jesus, and if you believe that, you'll believe everything that he said, everything that he did, and all that he accomplished in his death and resurrection. You'll entrust your soul to him as the sole source of making you right with God forever. If you believe that the Father sent Jesus, verse 21, you'll joyfully give him your life. That's what he's praying for you. So I'd like for us to do, take just a moment, silently, pick one thing from this prayer, and you take it back to the Lord, and you ask him to do that in you and in us. Let's pray together.